This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtBase. Are you managing a major art collection but still using something like Excel? Isn't it time to bring your collection management skills up to a professional level? Well, ArtBase is the right software to manage your art collection. ArtBase allows you to track your artworks in an easy-to-use, powerful database. Enter your data once, and then you can use that data to generate professional insurance value reports, loan forms, shipping forms, and so much more. They've got a brand new version coming out this month with a fresh new look. So go to artbase.com to learn more or to schedule a demo, and be sure to mention Art Tactic for a 15% discount off the entry fee. That's artbase.com, A-R-T-B-A-S-E dot com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. Hope everyone's staying safe out there with the coronavirus. You know, it's impacting everyone's lives in many different ways, particularly in the art world, galleries, auction houses, museums, pretty much everything's come to a standstill. Thankfully, we have things like social media. Instagram is a great way that really connects and brings so much of the art world together. We have things like podcasts and articles to read. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a difficult time for everyone. And, um, you know, we'll just get through it together. Most importantly, we hope everyone stays safe. In this week's episode, we're joined by Richard Polsky, author, dealer, and founder of Richard Polsky Art Authentication. Richard is actually our first guest on the Art Tactic podcast in 2009. Back then, most people didn't know what a podcast was, but it was a great first episode with Richard, and we've had him back on many times since then. We wanted to have Richard on to talk about the coronavirus's potential impact on the art market with galleries, auction houses, shutting down indefinitely, how that could play out for the art market moving forward. And Richard also wanted to share his thoughts on some artists that are worth considering acquiring at this time, even given the state of the economy and the uncertainty surrounding the virus. So we hope you enjoy the episode with Richard. Thanks so much again for listening and stay safe. Richard, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Adam. How you doing? Doing all right. Doing as best as I can in these crazy times. <laughs> yeah, these are trying times. These are trying times. They definitely are. How are you doing? You're in San Francisco area, right? Yeah, I'm in a town called Sausalito, but yeah, we're just across from the Golden Gate Bridge uh, from San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's we're all in this together, and what's so interesting is how does it affect the art world, what's going on? Exactly. It's an odd time for the art world and the art market. Galleries, auction houses, museums across the world, for the most part, are closed, and the virus is clearly having a significant impact on the economy and the stock market. And even though there aren't gallery exhibitions and auctions occurring, are you able to deduce to a certain extent how this is hurting different aspects of the art market? Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to look at this. Um, if you start at the top of the food chain, which I guess is the auction houses, there was just an announcement that I read that Sotheby's and Christie's plan to somehow hold their May contemporary art evening sales. Phillips has put theirs on hold, which makes me wonder, wow, maybe they know something we don't know. 
but I'm not sure that's the right strategy. Um, one thing I wanted to mention was the last time the art world was faced with a disaster like this was 2001 with you know the 9-11 attack. And my memory was that it came very close, I believe, to the uh, November sales. And I'll never forget, you probably know the name Irving Blum, the famous dealer, uh, Andy Warhol's first dealer in a way. I mean, on the Ferris Gallery, he gave Warhol the show of the original Sitcans. Well, Irving had amassed an amazing collection, and I'll never forget, he had consigned a major Donald Judd sculpture to one of the big auction houses. And once 9-11 happened, he called them and immediately pulled it from the sale and said, let's put it into next May. And it turned out to be the right move because the November sale uh, was very, very weak at the time, right after you know, the 9-11 event. And it did pick up again the following May. So he made the right move. But my point is, if you're a consigner right now to the evening sale, which means you have a multi-million dollar item, uh, you're concerned. And you wonder, can they really have an auction with no audience where it's all done online? Technically, of course they can. I'm sure they have the capabilities of doing this. But so much of the auctions, as you know, is the experience. It's the whole production. It's the, you know, the viewing ahead of time. It's the socializing with people you run into during the, the pre-sale viewings. They always have these breakfast events on a Sunday of the pre-sale. Um, very social. Well, all that's gone then. And my ultimate take on this is that if you're an investor, you don't have any problem buying work online. In other words, you don't need to see it in person. You're an investor. If you're buying, let's say, a Warhol electric chair painting, you know what an electric chair painting looks like. I mean, each no two are alike, but you know what you're looking at. But if you're a collector and you're looking to buy, let's say, a Warhol that you personally connect with, where you hang it in your home, you feel the presence of the artist in the room with you, you, you know, you want the total experience that collecting is all about. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you can't do that online. Uh, what do you think? I mean, how do you feel about that? They said they're going to hold them in May, but we were talking actually before we started recording the podcast and we were saying how you just have to take it day by day because the news and the amount of information is changing so rapidly and people are reacting to that. So they put that plan out there now that they're going to have the sales in May, but whether it's consigners putting pressure on the auction houses or maybe there's more restrictions on travel and crowded spaces. Basically, if things don't improve dramatically, I think they'll absolutely push these sales back maybe a month, maybe even two months. I, Adam, I couldn't agree more. I think that's what they're going to do because you can't, it just doesn't work. In my opinion, you can't do this. I don't see how it works. I think it'll come down to the consigners not wanting to sell their property right now. If you own, I mean, if you own a major painting, chances are you're, you know, you're well off financially. You're not selling it because you're going to miss a meal or something. You're selling it because for whatever reason, this is the opportune time to do it. Uh, there are always, you know, isn't there a big uh, divorce sale coming up as the Maclows or something? Exactly. Um, that's a whole different thing. I know that auctions were counting on that to fuel the May sales. 
I don't know what they'll do. But I think, obviously, there's going to be a lot of strategic thinking. From Sotheby's viewpoint, the fact they're no longer publicly traded, you know, they're privately held now, that will factor into how they look at it. They're not worried about pleasing shareholders. They're going to do what's best, they think, for them. Christie's, you know, likewise. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be very strange. And even beyond the evening sales, if we think about works traded at the day sale level, where that's most of the art market and where it really operates, it's interesting where things are right now. As I said, people are digesting information daily, more than daily, and the stock market's fluctuating significantly. And there's a lot of emotional and financial swings. And I see just from talking to different collectors, you know, there are some collectors who just want to be on the sideline for everything right now until things are figured out. There's too much uncertainty. Maybe they have some financial issues and they just aren't participating at all until they get some clarity on this situation and where we might be heading and how long this virus may last and how, to what extent the economic impact of the virus is. And then you have other collectors who are still buying, but they're being selective, more disciplined, I'd say. They'll only go after a few artists they're targeting, or they'll only go after really high-quality examples by different artists. And then there are some collectors who really haven't been too negatively impacted from a financial perspective, and they haven't changed their buying habits. Or in fact, they're actively pursuing distressed buying opportunities where they can find them. So you really have these different buckets of collectors, and I think it's interesting to see this kind of splitting off where even two weeks ago, there really wasn't anything like that happening at all in the market. As you said, it's so fluid. It doesn't change by the day. It seems to change by the hour, what you're told. One minute, you know, the stock market's up, then it's down, then there's a stimulus, then they're not passing the stimulus. And all of this has a bearing on the art market. I'll tell you a story. Uh, Years ago, you may have heard the name Don Fisher, uh, Mm -hmm. the collector who owned the Gap. And if you go to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, half the museum is his collection. They have a 100-year lease in place, uh, so to speak. In other words, he didn't donate it, but he gave him a lease or a loan for for 100 years. And the guy had everything. You name it, he had it. All right. Well, years ago, I didn't know Don Fisher. I knew him a little bit. And I ran into him at the University Art Museum in Berkeley. And he, he, you know, he said hello. And I said, wow, are you buying any art these days? And he said, no. And I said, really? He says, well, yeah, I was worth $2 billion. And, you know, the stock market's gone down. I'm only worth a billion and a half. I just feel poor right now. <laughs> you know, you start, you start laughing to yourself. And then you realize he's being honest. Yeah. He he actually, it's as real to him to be down half a billion dollars as it might be to you and me to be down, you know, 50,000 or 5,000 or whatever. It really was legitimate. And this is what you start realizing with the art world. This whole thing is built on faith and trust and confidence. And, you know, the bluest of the blue chip artists, whether it's Warhol or David Hockney or Roy Lichtenstein, Calder, those, those artists aren't going anywhere. They're, they're always going to be worth money. I mean, th- their prices may fluctuate. I mean, the last 10 years, it's just been up, up, and up. But it's the other stuff that you really wonder about, which is one of the things I know we wanted to get into. My, my take, and I could be completely wrong about this, of course, but, you know, there are a number of artists I wouldn't want to be holding right now, or I wouldn't be buying. 
Um, one example might be, let's say, Oscar Murillo. Now, there's an example. I think he's with the Zwerner, David Zwerner Gallery, you know, which is obviously one of the you know big names. And the work always looked kind of derivative to me of different artists. I don't know. And I don't know what they cost, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars I'm guessing. I don't know if I'd want my money in things like that. I also wonder about artists like Julie Moretu and Mark Bradford. It's not that they aren't good artists, they are good artists. But I've never understood why their works are three, four, five, six million. I don't get it. I look at a Julie Moretu and it's like, yeah, that's a nice looking abstract painting. But is it innovative the way Bryce Martin was or Robert Ryman was or Frank Stella was? Of course not. It's just a, it's just attractive work. I look at a Mark Bradford again. I don't know. I mean, you know, nice surface, interesting work, good looking. Would I put him in the same league as the artist I just mentioned? Of course not. I don't see what the contribution is to art history. So my thinking is, God, if I had that kind of money that these artists bring, or even someone like Richard Prince or John Curran, I don't know. I'd rather have my money in Hockney right now or Ed Rocher or even Basquiat, which has been, you know, just skyrocketing. Well, at least Basquiat is a myth and he's, his myth grows each year exponentially. I like where that's going. It's probably a pretty safe place to keep your money. But if you want to go real conservative, you know, people like David Hockney or like this or Calder. Yeah, we were emailing and you said you'd love to come on the podcast and talk about some artists who are worth buying now. And for our listeners who don't know, you used to actually have an article in which you would assign positions to different artists, either buy, hold, or sell positions. Yes. The art market guide. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I always enjoyed your articles and I thought they were interesting. And I like the way you looked at artists and their markets. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out and had you on my podcast originally as our first guest in 2009. I remember. Before people really knew what podcasts were. <laughs> the art market was starting to recover from the credit crisis. And we had you on and you helped us make sense of different artists and which ones are worth acquiring at the time. So you reached out. Now we were talking. I said, yeah, let's get you back on, especially in these uncertain times. I think you start to contextualize artists and try to determine which ones are important, which ones will stand the test of time, and as you said, which ones have and will make major contributions to art history. So who are a few artists you feel strongly about buying right now, maybe in spite of what's going on around the world? It's like those are all those artists I mentioned are certainly worth buying, but you know, we could list 20 or 30 artists that are pretty conservative, artists like Wayne Tebow or Richard Diepenkorn. You're not going to lose money on those artists. I mean, it's possible you'd overpay. You might, you know, or you might not pick the best example if you don't have a good eye. But things like that, um, I, I feel comfortable telling people to buy that, but they don't need me to tell them that either. I mean, the funny thing is, it's, you know, I was listening to some, I don't know what, what it was, a movie or some show, and somebody was talking about a theory, and I can't remember what the name of the theory was, but what it said was essentially that usually the simplest answer is the correct answer. And that may hold true here where, you know, you buy a Georgia O'Keeffe painting, assuming you like the work, well, geez, she's a myth. How is this, you know, going to ever change? It's always going to be good. 
Um, you may pay a lot for it, but you'll get your money out of it and you'll probably do well in the long run when our economy writes itself again. Um, I think the art market, you know, right now it's a short-term problem. I'm not sure it's a long-term problem, but it's definitely a short-term problem. Um, the other issue is that you're going to see happen, and this may be obvious, but a lot of these galleries that are closing up right now, you know, because of the, you know, the virus, mm-hmm. um, they're not going to reopen. Because what's going to happen is this, as this goes on, they're going to say, you know, assuming their lease is up, you know, fairly soon, they're going to say, why am I doing this? It's costing me so much money every month to stay open. And it's going to hit home now. Or they're going to say, unless they have a lot of money, family money, their spouse's money, they made it in another field, they're going to question the wisdom of redoing this, or I should say reopening. And what they're going to find is if they are doing an online platform for their gallery, some of these people are going to like doing it. They're going to say, wow, here I am. I'm working from home. I have my coffee. I have my tea. This is pretty neat. And they're going to realize they don't need a gallery with all the overhead, the employees, the electricity, the insurance. They don't need all that to buy or sell paintings. Now, obviously, there's always going to be room, and I pray there's always room for brick-and-mortar galleries. I love galleries. I own one. I love the experience. I miss owning a gallery. But I do believe you're going to see gallery closures when, when the ship writes itself. Uh, people are going to realize they either don't want to spend the money or they like the freedom. They like the flexibility of just working from home and you know, it allows them to work on other projects. If they're writing a book, for instance, or if they're a parent and they need to spend more time with a kid, any number of things. So they're going to definitely be some big changes there. That prediction's really interesting. When you were first introducing it, I thought, you were going to say that some galleries won't be back because they were closed for three months and they couldn't survive. Maybe that will happen to some galleries. I think it likely will. But you're going the other direction and saying some galleries will do okay. And because of their online presence, maybe they'll have a similar level of success. And that will cause them to actually question the traditional brick-and-mortar model. Well, some will. I mean, there'll always be galleries and there'll always be different neighborhoods where they spring up, where somebody sees an opportunity and as a young person and they believe in art, they're idealistic and that's all great. We need it. But we're in a world or an art world or an art market where this is so much about money and business and investment. And this sort of circles around to what I said at the beginning of our broadcast, where you know, people who invest in art, they can buy online. They don't need to sit at Sotheby's auction house to make their decision. If they're just interested in flipping things and investing, they're doing that already. Um, so if you're a dealer in the secondary market, you really don't need a gallery. You know, you just need to be able to, you need a phone and access to getting on an airplane, you know, to see people and make deals. But it's all changing. And you really hope, I mean, there's another school of thought. I mean, a lot of people are being optimistic and saying, thanks to the virus, it's going to force people to be a little kinder to each other and a little more patient and a little more, you know, caring. Uh And you wondered, wow, does that trickle into the art world where people, you know, aren't the nicest always. Uh (laughs) 
there's a lot of bad behavior. And, you know, I've never heard an art dealer say anything nice about one of his colleagues. And that's the truth. At least, you know, you hear it behind everyone's back. Uh, so maybe some good comes out of this. Maybe people realize that there is a spirit where there used to be to walking around Soho. Maybe that spirit still exists in Chelsea. Maybe it, you know, maybe people are going to wake up and realize, wow, we got to work together. We need each other. Um, artists need a place to show. Collectors need to, you know, see things in person once in a while to form an opinion, at least when an artist is first starting out. Um, I don't know. Um, it'd be interesting, obviously. Definitely. We're just going to have to continue monitoring things and see how this all plays out and hope for the best for the economy, for everyone's health, and for the art world. Well, what could, I'll give you, I'll leave you with one other thought. Um, sure. What could happen, and we don't know for sure, is it could, I mean, the May sales, which to me are the key to everything. And you say that because the May sales, or whenever they occur this year, are really the first barometer as to where the art market stands after the coronavirus has really spread across the world. Yeah. I mean, everything, I've always believed the art market functioned on a six-month basis, mm -hmm. you know, between major sales. And whatever happens at those May and November sales calls the shots for the next six months. And the problem is everybody, when they get their auction results, if things don't exceed estimate, you know, they get upset. They expect everything to exceed estimate. And, uh, and they have been. Most things seem to have been doing that. As long as that keeps happening, it keeps, keeps the market moving and surging forward and going up in value. But the minute you have a sale where the results are just, they fall, let's say, within the estimate. They don't even have to go below them, just within. People are, some people are going to panic. And what you hope will happen, you want the auctions to succeed, don't get me wrong. But what, you know, this big story about how Pace and Aquavella and um, who is the third gallery? That, uh, Gagosian. Donald Marin estate, Gagosian. People really love hearing that. They're like, wow, thank God the auction houses didn't get that too. We want to balance. The art world functions best when there's a sense of balance. You can't have the auction houses vacuuming up everything. It's just too much power in one one set of hands. You do want dealers to have a shot at these things. You want a level playing field. That's what could happen because you can't imagine a scenario where the May sales of this year are going to do better than the May sales of last year. I don't see how that happens. If nothing else, people could pull their property, so they're not going to have the dollar volume. But let's say you know they do the sale, they do it online, they move forward, and it does fine. Well, fine isn't good enough. And that's the problem you're dealing with. Everyone's expectations is one sale has to exceed the last one in terms of dollar volume of prof, if possible, and in terms of new records being set for blue chip artists. The minute that stops happening, people will, you know, scratch their heads a little. You know, those who are, you know, the day traders, so to speak, of the business. Um, it's, it's, you know, something's going to change there. I, don't, I mean, I want it to do well. It's in all of our best interests. I'm in the art authentication business. I want to make sure you know, people still want to hire me because they care what their Jackson Pollock 
you know, they care whether it's genuine or not. And assuming it is, they're able to sell it. You know, that's, that's what they care about. And that's what they need me for and how I make a living. So, you know, obviously I, I have some self-interest here. I've got skin in the game, as they say. So I want things to do well. And before we let you go, we wanted to ask you about your art authentication business, Richard Polsky Art Authentication. You discussed the launch of the business on our podcast a while ago and then came on to tell us about a year ago that you expanded the number of artists you are authenticating. How are things going at the moment? They're, they're going quite well. Um, but, you know, the last few weeks, of, you know, my business has fallen off like everyone's. Um, business is still coming in, but not at the same level. And what's interesting is you probably know about the tool Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with I that? I am a little bit, yeah. You know, where I can, yeah, in other words, I can um, go to Google Analytics and see how my website is doing. They could tell me how many people are visiting it, what countries they're from, which pages are they going to, are more people going to Basquiat than Keith Herring this week. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's like you can't, it's addictive. You can't stop looking at this thing. Because it changes every day and it changes every hour. They can even tell you if someone's currently on your website while you're, you know, looking at this. All right. So what I've noticed is this roughly the same number of people are going to my website since the virus said it's still happening. But not as many are pulling the trigger They're, You know, they're holding off a little. They're like, well, let's see how this, you know, shakes out, you know. So the interest is there, which gives me confidence that. When we get through this, the business will, you know, go back to where it was, might even exceed it. The hope is there's, you know, this pent up uh, desire to get your paintings authenticated because it was on your list of things to do. And, you know, you've put it on hold and postponed it. You know, everything sorts itself out. So I'm expecting a fairly big rush of business later in the year, hopefully. But that would be my guess. One of the things I'll mention to you is when we talked last time, I think I was uh, working with five artists, Basquiat, Keith Haring, Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, uh, Jackson Pollock. Since then, I was approached by people involved with the Bill Trailer market. Do you know about Bill Trailer's work? Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I was actually at the Outsider Art Fair in New York a little while ago, and I would say Purvis Young and Bill Trailer were by far the two most prominent artists on view. Okay, there you go. Okay. I think I must have seen at least 15 Bill Trailers, and they weren't just in one or two booths. They were spread out. He really seems to be one of those prominent artists who's gaining a lot of momentum in the outsider art movement very recently. Well, Bill Trailer's the rock star of the outsider art world. He's, he's just the best. And back in the 80s, when I had a gallery in San Francisco called Acme Art, we were one of the first people to show the work. So I've been a longtime fan and was early, you know, in terms of getting involved in it. Well, lately, Bill Trailer's hit the big time because one of them, I think, brought over $500,000 earlier this year at auction. And it was a famous piece. It belonged at one time to the director, Steven Spielberg who gave it as a gift to Alice Walker when he did the movie Color Purple for her involvement. Well, she sold it recently and got half a million dollars, which was by far and away a record for a Bill trailer. Well, since then, and even before that, there have been a lot of fake trailers coming onto the market. A lot. Because they're fairly easy to fake. I mean, you need need to be an artist. You need a skill set. But it can be done. Some of these fakes are good. They're really, really hard to, you know, to figure out. 
anyway, long story short, I was approached by some of the people uh, who are very involved in the Bill Trailer market. Uh, one guy's name is John Ullman. He owns Fleischer Ullman in Philadelphia, longtime friend. And, you know, he's like the godfather of the outsider art market, in my opinion. Um, he and a number of his colleagues came to me and said, wow, there's this huge problem with the Bill Trailer market. Is this something you might like to get involved with in terms of authenticating the work? So we're talking. Uh, we're talking right now of how do we set this up? Can we put a committee together where I'll take charge of it, but I'll get input from some other Bill Trailer experts? So, you know, I pretty much was satisfied with working with these five artists. Uh, believe me, there's a lot to know. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming at times so much there is to know about Jackson Pollock alone. But that aside, we, I may get involved with Bill Trailer if this moves forward. It's at the talking stages, but it could be good. That sounds great. Yeah, the Outsider Fair, it's a little bit different. It's almost all secondary. So these galleries aren't representing the artists they're showing. And all of a sudden, Bill Trailer has these auction results and his work is all of a sudden in 15 plus booths at the fair. And the aesthetic, it's, it's quite minimal. It looks like it could be easily faked. To me, as someone who isn't too familiar with the outsider art movement, when I went to the fair, all of it felt like the Wild West. So I think some kind of authentication process would be very helpful for the market. I think it would be good because markets are all about confidence. You have to have, I mean, job one before you buy a Picasso or any artist is that it's genuine, it's authentic. That, that's got to be a given. And, you know, if you're dealing with one of the better galleries, of course it is. Of course they're selling real art. But we know the experience in the art world is so varied. There's so many online sites. You know, there's even eBay, you know, selling all these fake Basquiat. It's unbelievable how many fakes are on eBay. Um, you know, trailers are on eBay. I mean, fake trailers. It's, it's crazy. So we live in a world where authentication really does matter. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, outsider art wasn't much of a problem because there wasn't that money in it, but there is now. And um, so we'll see what happens with that. But it could be good. Definitely. Richard, we always appreciate having you on the podcast to chat about the art market and share your insights, as well as update us on the authentication business. If our listeners want to learn more about Richard Polsky Art Authentication, what's the website they can visit? Uh, go to Richard. Polsky. Polsky is spelled P-O-L-S-K-Y. So go to richardpolskyart.com and you'll see what we do. Fantastic. Richard, thanks so much again for joining us and stay safe. Likewise, likewise. Thanks so much for ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast. Are you managing a major art collection but still using Excel? Isn't it time to bring your collection management skills up to a professional level? Well, ArtBase is the right software to help you out and manage your art collection. ArtBase allows you to track your artworks in an easy-to-use but powerful database. You enter your data once, then you use that data to generate professional insurance value reports, loan forms, shipping forms, and so much more. They have a brand new version coming out this month with a fresh new look, so now's the perfect time to visit ArtBase.com to learn more and to schedule a demo, and be sure to mention our tactic for a 15% discount off the entry fee. You can visit artbase.com, that's A-R-T-B-A-S-E.com.